This morning, uh, I don't know about you, but have you ever had an overwhelming challenge that, that was just kind of thrown in your face? I will never forget in my life, June 1st, uh, 1986. It was one of those days, it was a Sunday, actually. I was on staff, I'd been on staff of a church in Virginia for about, um, let's see, it had been four years at that point. Uh, it seemed like a normal Sunday. I was a, I was a student pastor. Uh, I also did uh, discipleship and Sunday school and everything there for the church. It's a church that was growing. It was a suburban church outside of Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, it seemed like a normal Sunday as it started. I mean, we had our normal morning, Sunday morning services just packed out. Uh, had Sunday school. I had probably uh, 100 teenagers there. Uh, for the two Sunday schools we had, and we had all these things going on. And that afternoon, though, uh, I got a call, and that call really changed the direction. It was a challenge uh, for me that day and for us as a church because that afternoon our pastor, the guy I worked with for four years, uh, 42 years old, and seemingly good health had had a heart attack, and it died. Uh, I didn't know that on my way to the hospital, but when I got there I found out. And this was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon, just after church. And so that afternoon, what we're going to do is, uh, we, that we were a church, uh, you know, the traditional Southern Baptist church, and many churches did this, that had evening services. And uh, so the, the challenge was, is that how do we let our people know? How do we do with that? And all of a sudden, they just look at me and say, well, you're next in charge. You, you do it, dude. And I'm going like, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? I mean, I was... Uh, you know, in my uh, late, uh, or, let's see, late 20s, early 30s, uh, I was at a place in my life where I'd been doing ministry for a number of years, but it basically student ministry, I taught occasionally. It wasn't very often, so I was not used to doing all those things. And so how do you let a couple of hundred people who are showing up for an evening service know that that morning everything was fine and that afternoon everything wasn't fine? And so it was one of the biggest challenges that I was facing. And so I remember that vividly. And you may have had situations in your life where courage, in a sense, was required, where things, you know, didn't seemingly, you know, was thrown at you. Uh, but often what we prefer to do and when we have uh, challenges before us is we encourage to, uh, uh, we're, we're, we prefer to play it safe. We have uh, preferred to avoid risk, to stay within our boundaries. If life were a swimming pool, uh, most of us try to stay in the shallow end and uh, because that's the safe place to be. But there are moments, defining moments in our life where courage is thrust upon us. We must make a decision about what we're going to do. Uh, and so often we think that courage is only for those big things. I mean, you hear the stories about some mom throwing her body over top of a couple of kids during a tornado and saving them, uh, you know, or something like that, or somebody who sees a car accident and goes over and the car's on fire and they rip the door off because of all their adrenaline and, and then they pull somebody. I mean, you hear those stories of, and you think, oh, that's, you know, that's courage. But I would say to you that, and say to all of us, that courage is something that we need in everyday life. And so often, um, we don't even realize that it takes courage to do things. Like, you know, today at the end of the service, one of the things that we have is we have a prayer room over here. And, and people, uh, what we encourage people to do is at the end of a service, if they have a decision to make, if they need to talk to somebody about some uh, next step they need to take in their walk with Christ, it takes courage to walk from here over to that room and say to someone, I need to make, take a next step. I don't know Jesus Christ. I want to make Christ the Lord and Savior of my life. It takes courage maybe this week for a young lady to break off a relationship with a guy uh, she really likes because she knows that it isn't what God wants for her. That takes courage. Uh, it takes courage for a husband to look at his wife tonight and to say to her, you know, before they go to bed, why don't we start praying together? I have to admit I've not been a very good spiritual leader in my house. 
That takes courage for a man to say that. Uh, It takes courage for an employee to say to a boss, I am not going to doctor the receipts anymore. It takes courage. It takes courage to sit across from a friend uh, who you said, I want you to be my accountability partner, and to say to that person, I cannot seem to control my temper, and I keep yelling at my wife and kids, or I'm struggling with alcohol, or I'm struggling with pornography. Will you help me? I need help. That takes courage. Or it takes courage to fight for a marriage when you know, no longer feel in love with the person that you're married to. It takes courage to, to work through that. See, courage is, is much more of a quality that it's desperately needed on a daily basis than we often think. The last several weeks, we've been studying a book called The Story. The Story is basically, and I've shared this before, but I want to share it again for those of you who have kind of come in recently. The story is a abridged chronological Bible, meaning that it is, uh, it is a large portion of Scripture, not all of the Bible, so probably 60 to 70% of Scripture. And basically it's a book that's arranged chronologically from when it, the, the Bible started and when it, it kind of concludes with the end. And, and as we go through it, it's, it's taken and it's broken into chapters, 31 chapters that kind of help us to, to understand how things work and there's no, uh, uh, references or anything like that. It's just, you just read it like a book or some, there's some, there's some, uh, transitional statements in there. Uh, but it's a bridge. It is not the whole Bible. So it's, it's different than the Bible, but it is something to help us to get into the Bible. And somebody asked me earlier, said, you know, a few weeks ago, I said, you know, man, this is going to be in there for a long time. We're going to be in that. I'm going like, well, you know, what else do we study at Great Oaks? I've had people before ask me, you know, well, do y'all teach, you know, they don't come to church here, but they ask, well, y'all teach the Bible at Great Oaks? And I'm going like, what else would we teach? I mean, what did you know, Grimm's Fairy Tales or something? I don't know. What else do you teach when you church? I don't know what else. I would have no curriculum. I'd have nothing to talk about if we didn't talk about the Bible. So well, the thing is, what we're doing is we're doing this in a systematic way to help you to see the overview of the Bible. So, yeah, it's 31 weeks, and this is week 7. So kind of numerically, we're kind of about a quarter of the way through. And this week kind of marks a transition as we end the first part of it, which is, we call it the Pentateuch, the first few books of the Bible, and get into the where God creates, he covenants with his people, those type of things. Next week, we start kind of a next part that will lead up to Christmas, and that's the part where it's about judges and kings, and so we'll be looking at that for a period of time. And then after Christmas, about the prophets, and then and then about the New Testament, about Jesus. We'll spend a whole ton of time on the stories of Jesus and the Gospels, and then we'll end up with the end, which is where the Bible ends, the end. So that's kind of our story. But today we're in chapter 7. And in chapter 7 of the story, we read about Joshua, who was a man of great courage. Uh, the, the Bible tells us that Moses had died. We talked about that last week. Uh, he had been in this period of wandering with his people. And he'd come to the place, that come to the edge of the promised land, and he had died. And, and Joshua is the next generation leader. Uh, he's the guy who grew up on this journey of, of wandering. I mean, he was a young man when he first started, and now he's an older man. He's been around for a number of years now. He, he emerged as a leader in waiting, in a sense. But also something interesting about Joshua, and we'd read this uh, uh, last week, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he was one of the original 12 spies that were sent into the, into the promised land. Remember when they first got there, the first year, uh, Chris talked about them going to Mount Sinai and there getting the covenant, getting the Ten Commandments and getting the, uh, all those things going on there. The first year was spent kind of there, and then they kind of journeyed up to the edge of the promised land, and there's 12 spies that were sent in. 
And, and as the 12 spies are sent in, a 10 of the spies came back and reported this. They said in Numbers 13, it says, yes, we went into the land to which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. And they had this like pole with, a, with one bunch of grapes that took to two guys to carry. That was one bunch of grapes is all I can say. But I mean, so it was, it was this incredibly uh, rich land. But, the, but then it said this. Yeah, it's, it's flowing with milk and honey. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. And then a couple of verses later, it says this, and all the people we saw there are of great size, and we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Now, 10 of the guys come back, and they're terrified, and that's the report they give, and we read that earlier in a couple of weeks ago. But the issue is, is what happens is that those 10 people basically poison the people against going into the promised land. They become afraid and terrified. But there were two guys that came back out of the 12, two guys that came back, and they had a different report. Yeah, the land is flowing with milk and honey. We trust in God. Let's get going. And those two guys were Caleb and Joshua. Joshua and Caleb, they were the two, only the two guys that we see now after 40 years of wandering that are still alive. I mean, that's one of the reasons that they had to wander around so long. They had to, you know, until the people who didn't believe anymore could, could die off. And so they could be ready for the next generation to go into the promised land. And so we see that here and there and 40 years later now. And in Joshua chapter 1, if you have your Bibles this morning, or if you have your book, you turn to chapter 7. But if you have your Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to be looking at some verses here and the story of Joshua and the whole deal of courage and how do we deal with that issue. There's so many things. I don't know about you guys, but I've read this chapter this week, and I'm going like, what part of this do I need to teach? I can't possibly teach everything. So I just zeroed in on just a small portion here, uh, this whole area of, of courage and what, what it does in our life and how God uh, gives it to us. Joshua chapter 1, verses 2 through 7. It says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, God's talking to Joshua, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place you set your foot, uh, as you set your foot, as I promised Moses. He reminds him of the promise. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river to the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. Remember that promise. No one, Joshua, will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be strong, but be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. He says this over and over. If you read further, he talks about being strong and courageous. Now, the thing is, is when he encourages them to do this, why is he doing this? Because he is preparing them. God is preparing them for what will be required later. That's what God's doing. God is often, when he tells us and he gives us these experiences in life, I can go back and look at some experiences that I had some years before that happened where June 1st, 1986 happened, and I realized that those were some experiences that God was giving me in my life to prepare me for that time. And God even used that time to prepare me from some stuff later on down the road in regard to some leadership challenges. You see, because once Israel crosses the Jordan River and comes to Jericho, it's clear why God tells them that they need to be strong and courageous. Because this is a small facsimile of the wall. Uh, we, we brought it directly over from, you know, we didn't. Uh, 
But you know, the wall was this, it, it, the, the walls of Jericho, the city that they come to there as they go into the promised land, uh, the walls of Jericho, we were told, it had two walls, an outer wall and an inner wall. And the outer wall was six feet thick, and I don't know how tall it was, it was very tall. And the inner wall was 12 feet, feet thick. And on the inner wall, people actually lived in the inner wall. I mean, you had like, I guess you had your residence on the inner wall part. So, the, you, you know, together, 18 feet of wall, thick and really tall. And it was heavily fortified in people, in people all around, the soldiers all around the top of the wall in this fortified city. Now, this was the same city, uh, one of the same cities they had gone to 40 years earlier, had, had seen. And it's, the wall hadn't gotten any smaller than it was 40 years before. Matter of fact, probably they had fortified it even more over the period of time. The people hadn't shrunk in size either. And and so the thing is, uh, that's what we see so often. You know, God was preparing them. He's saying, be strong and courageous because you got some stuff ahead of you that, that I want you to to, uh, to be able to deal with. And so if we could sit back and read our story from beginning to end, it would be clear how often God has been preparing us for things. I mean, you can look back in your life and say, I went through that experience and it helped me to do this. I know, I've talked to you before. I know you've had the same experiences that I had. And as we go forward in the story, uh, it tells us that God had a plan um, for how Israel will defeat Jericho. And, and, and as we read through the next next four or five chapters there of Joshua, basically talks about him sending a couple of spies in, and we won't go through all that story. They go and they they find this uh, they find this one person who is a sympathetic to their cause. She's a, she's a prostitute named Rahab, and she becomes one of their confidants inside the city and they do all these different things and finally they come to the place of going in and god gives them the plan about how they're going to overcome this this fortified city um and in joshua chapter 6 verse 2 uh, god tells joshua this he says see i have delivered jericho into your hands now if you don't know the story you think oh cool cool well the problem is, is the tense, the verb tense here. He said, I have done this. No, 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 God. We're still out here on this side of the wall over here. Jericho's right there and the people are inside. None of that's happened yet. So why does God use this tense, this verb tense here? Why does he say, well, I have delivered Jericho into your hands? It seems that God is speaking. He's speaking out of turn here. Because Israel was still outside the fortified walls, but God was trying to tell Israel to have courageous faith. That God was going to, going to fight the battle for him. Because courageous faith is this. Courageous faith is speaking of what hasn't happened as if it already has. Courageous faith is speaking of what hasn't happened as if it already has. Go to the next slide. And, and the thing is, we can, can't always assume that God uh, will always Give us what we want, can we? You know, if I want to go off and get on top of our building deck, and if I would like to fly, and I have to jump off the building, do you think God is going to, you know, sustain me for that? Probably not, because he never promised me anywhere in his word that as a person I can fly. But he had promised the people of Israel what? He said, I will be with you. No one will be able to overcome you. And so they, he says to them, he says this, he said, act as if this has already happened. Courageous faith is speaking of what hasn't happened as if it already has. If God has promised it, we can speak of what hasn't happened if it already has. That's what he's saying. That's why he's using this tense here in this passage. And so the people go forward. 
and they're full of strength and courage, then God delivers the battle plan. And this is the strange part of the whole deal. Because so often when God tells us to do something, it doesn't make always make total sense. Remember, Joshua had been part of the this whole contingent of, of Israelite people as they've gone through the desert for many years. They fought some battles out in the desert as well, if you've read it already. So they weren't without battle experience. Joshua was now in leadership, had been partly in leadership for a number of years, and he became the primary leader when Moses died. So he had a lot of experience in leadership. And I'm sure he had a plan in his head about what is going to happen when we go to this city and how we're going to take over. And it probably uh, was not what God, what he thought God was going to tell him to do. So in Joshua chapter 6, verse 3, God delivers the battle plan. We all know this plan. Every time I see, read this, I read this, I'm thinking of Veggie Tales. You know what Veggie Tales is? Those of you have little kids, Veggie Tales. I have grandkids. And the other day I was watching, watching the Veggie Tales version of this. And I, I can't keep it, get it out of my head because it's so goofy. Um, you know, but I mean, it kind of tells the story, but kind of a goofy way. But anyway, it says this. God says this. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them uh, shout, uh, hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone straight in. You sure, God? That's the plan? I mean, it's kind of unconventional, God. That's not how you normally fight battles. Uh, it's not really, Joshua was thinking, not really what I was thinking. I'm sure that's what he was thinking. I'm sure in Joshua's battle plan, it was to depend upon some information from Rahab the, prof, uh, the prostitute, who was the inside person. And the plan was to have a marching man and go around the city. I'm sure that wasn't in his plans, but 